0: Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. As usual, my name is Michael and co-hosting with me is Phoenix. Today we have three guests. Our first guest is Matthew Page. Matthew is a former Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Africa with the U.S. government and is currently a scholar of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Our second guest is Samuel. Samuel is a policy analyst at the International Budget Partnership. Now, the three topics we're discussing today are, firstly, we'll be looking at the news that the NMPC, or the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation, has posted its first profit of 287 billion naira after 44 years of existence. Secondly, we be discussing the attacks on the Nigerian Defense Academy in Kaduna, which led to the the death of two military personnel. And thirdly, we'll be discussing the news that officers of the Nigerian Security Services opened fire at a recruitment center where doctors were seeking jobs in Saudi Arabia. So now to our first topic, NMPC, Phoenix. All through our lives, we'd always been told that the NMPC was a basket case, not profitable, I was just a drain on the country's resources. So what happened? How were they able to declare a profit of $287 billion, Phoenix? I'm oh, sorry, Naira.
1: Hi, Michael. And uh, hi, Matthew and uh, Atiku. Thanks for joining us this week. Hello, listeners. Thanks for being with us again this week. Uh, f- first thing I wanted to do today was to you know, remember uh, the late uh, Victor Waifo, who passed away over the weekend, legend um, um, of our music scene. So, I mean, may he so rest in peace, wanted to get that out out of the way. Uh, <laughs> when I first heard this story, I wasn't particularly sure how to respond because I, I do remember that uh, Buhari had, uh, had, had made... Um, probity within NMPC and the petroleum sector a key part of his uh, his um, stated ambition when coming to power and of course so I wasn't sure what, what, what we should pick out was it to celebrate that yes they've continued to try and you know deliver financial uh, results and have them audited or the fact that they were having uh, they were declaring a profit and to them was the first time in 44 years. So the first thing that struck me was, well, if you're, if you're saying we've never declared a profit before, uh, don't forget that you were also at one point in time, minister of petroleum and also head of state. So that 44 years surely must also encompass the period that you were there and, and it didn't happen. But then again, when you start digging, you find out that, that it's not actually true because I mean, in 2017, if you look at the, the, the last audited uh re- report that was put out by the nnpc so the one they're talking about is for 2020 but on their website you have the 2019 one and it, and as you normally see in this financial statements uh, they will give you a five-year summary and you can clearly see that in 2017 they declared a profit so i mean i, I unless you're telling me that between 2020 and 2017 counts for 44 years it, it just seemed like a pr stunt that has gone down very badly the other thing that you then see is, which goes back to my first impression was what really is what was so celebratory about this that they needed to you know, call it out to that degree because really the transparency isn't there. The transparency is still not there. and To the extent that if you go on the website of, of NNPC, the 2018 group audited results has very conveniently disappeared. So while all the other, because every year they will give you all the financial statements for all the companies under the NNPC and the last result would always be the group, the group one. If you go there now, you see the 2019 group results. But if you go to the list for 2018, the 2018 one has been conveniently de- deleted. So the question then becomes, is it because when you look at that and you look at the five year summary, you probably see the results for 2014, and maybe you will see something they don't want you to see, or or, or which negates this whole celebration around um, uh, 44 years. So for me, it's just it was, it was just it wasn't necessary. And then you look at the financial conditions of, of the company, and 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 me <laughs> being somebody with a uh, somewhat uh, um, a, financial background would like to actually look into the details to see exactly what has how they've generated um the the profit because anybody knows that um anybody who understands accounting knows that there are different ways that you can get to profit i can i can look at the same results and give you a profit you can look at it and and deliver the same thing with a loss without doing anything that is illegal so somebody celebrating 287 billion Naira of profit. The question is, how did they get to that number? So we'll see when they finally decide to post the results and see that. But for me, I'm not sure it's, it's something that should be made a whole deal out of. Um, I mean, we, we continue to see the NNPC struggling to fulfill its mission. It's still very opaque. Uh, it's still at the center of of everything that is wrong with Nigeria, and we are hoping that uh, the PIB begins to unravel that and take it in a different direction. Um, the, 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 I mean, let's talk about the subsidy issue that that continues to create a massive leakage um, to the nation's resources. Um, at the last count, we're we're talking about 102 uh, million liters of um, petrol being consumed on a daily basis. That's incredible. I mean. I remember at the height of the noise 10 years ago it was we're talking about 35 40 million i mean has nigeria's population or number of vehicles or whatever tripled in that time i, I don't understand and then you hear harebrained ideas like oh they're going to go set up filling stations in niger republic to curb um smuggling so <laughs> i think i think it was just a PR disaster, as far as I'm concerned, especially because they didn't get their facts right. We wait to see the the actual results be posted, and then we'll go through the through them and uh, uh, and then see. What, I mean, how far they've come from from that probity perspective that they're trying to push. But that was that was my take on the whole thing.
0: Thank you, Phoenix. Uh, let me ask Samuel. Uh, Samuel, one of the things. Phoenix has highlighted is obviously the NMPC's past, especially on the Buhari's government, with the um, miraculous increase in the amount spent on fuel subsidies, and also the general lack of transparency with the Nigerian government's managing of resources. So, I know we haven't seen the full breakdown of the results yet, but. I know you are you are policy consultant with uh, on, on budgeting. So, in, in your view, are, are these results to be trusted, Samuel?
2: Interesting, interesting question. I think what has happened is um, uh, the presidency actually did uh, release a statement um, suggesting that the NMDC had made profit, of which that's not new. Um, just like Phoenix did rightfully, I like. Uh, I mean, they've been making profit in the past. The question has always been issues that we call that are not operational that it's up, uh, that it's up the profit that they purportedly made, right? The, so the accounting reasons why, even when your operations looks fantastic on paper, uh, maybe you are writing down assets uh, you're actually covering existing laws, you're paying down subsidy and many other things like that. That's why NMPC had non made profit. So let's look at it clearly. Um, if you look at, NMPC is actually very big conglomerate, right? You have a lot of businesses actually running under NMPC. The refinery doesn't work, nothing has changed to actually tell you, and suggest to you that that's business interest now making profits. If you walk away from that and then you go to the pipelines, um, still an MPC's business, right? Moving products uh, from, from product production center or from, um, I'll call it um, uh, import uh, base into Nigeria. Now that business has historically been profitable although to a particular degree, sometimes because of um, activities of um, sabotage. And then of course I'll call them domestic terrorists that attack some of those pipelines, of course we had issues around that. Uh, so. If you begin to dive deep into different, different pillars of NMBC business, and we could look at the operations and tell you that some of them have been profitable. But within the last four years, I've not seen any significant administrative changes or adventure, if we move away from administrative changes in terms of investments shakeup, that will have warranted this whole conversation. Before you start talking about something, of course, you must have carried out a whole lot of um, reforms in, in between that space. Now, the statement by the president is just again. game. Um, remember, the PIB actually, after the PIB, you have to go raise debt. The PIB actually empowers um, the NMPC to raise debt. And in terms of the PR spin around that, you want to make, you want to portray uh, to investors, whether people buying shares or borrowing NMPC money, that the business interests actually worried. I mean, it's working, that's essentially what we are seeing. Um, and it's not new. So if you look at the presidency, most times they release information about financials at the end of the year, by the time you interrogate you for that, I think you'll find holes in those reports. And I can mention many. You must have had a series of um, conversation around uh, the customs, making one trillion naira. Uh, you must have had a series of conversation around FIRS making uh, 4 trillion, they break, I mean, the broke record here and there. But the truth is that if you look at the final paper, you will see holes all over those reports. So my own take here is that until the report comes out, um, you'll see the report in public domain, which is essentially not in public domain, until we see the audit report in public domain. And then you interrogate the figures before you jump on that. Uh, so just like Phineas, I think it's just a PR spin, of course, to get um, unsuspecting uh, investors, whether people that want to borrow the NMPC money within the, within the context of the new PIB that empowers them to actually reach out to investors. That's one number two, to justify. Remember, the Central Bank of Nigeria has strong student laws around who you can borrow money. Uh, NMPC will be out to Nigerian banks to typically borrow money. <laughs> going forward, maybe to repair refinery or to invest in Dangote's refinery or to do ABCD. Now, those piece of things, you will need to justify reason why the bank should, why commercial banks in Nigeria should actually advance uh, money to NNPC. And w- <laughs> what better way can you do it than the president himself, the owner of the business, I mean, the custodian of the business of Nigerian people announcing to the world that this business is profitable so overall I would call it a PR spin I think people should take it with a pinch of salt wait until the audit reports are actually made public and in terms of made, being made public it's not about keeping it in an NPC office but actually publishing it on the website of the uh, of the uh, of the NPC that anybody could actually access it uh, so with when you see that report that you can now draw down your conclusion uh, again I retreat it. If you look at last year 2019 report, you see some markdown. They mark down a lot of assets. Uh, So again, don't let me dwell too much on this statement. All these are are, are accounting gimmicks, right? So the fundamental is let's wait for the reports. When we see the report, we draw our conclusions.
0: Thank you, Samuel. I just have two follow-up questions that I'd like you to briefly uh, briefly address. The the first question is, these reports, who are they audited by? Is it a case of the NMPC gets maybe the big four, like PwC or Ernst & Young to do the auditing? And the second question is, Peter Peterside, who's a, a respected uh, banking professional, has said there's an allegation that the NMPC dipped their fingers into the federation cookie jar in order to announce bumper 2020 profits. So could, could you explain... What, what exactly he's alleging, uh, briefly, Samuel.
2: So, yeah, I think one thing that he's saying is actually true, historically, um, just for context, if you look at the NMPC itself, NMPC is not owned by the federal government, it's owned by the Federation, meaning that it's owned by the federal, the state and the local government. Uh, so when revenue actually come, when you see revenue, we typically will call that revenue a Federation revenue. Now, historically, what NPC has done is like, if NPC actually returns, say, 10 trillion, they take out money from that 10 trillion. They will classically put your hand in the cookie jar, right? And then you take out money. That money essentially is what they call operational, uh, they, they call it operational money. It's for paying down subsidy, for doing many things, investing in Dangote refinery at least, doing A, B, C, D. That's essentially what has happened. And if you read the NEITI report, NEITI is actually the Nigerian, um, uh, I, I keep, uh, I, I can't call it their food, the it's actually the Extractive uh, Transparency Initiative, they, of course. If you look at their audit report, which they've done on NNPC, they historically, every year, they've accused NNPC of uh, of taking out funds that they cannot justify. Let me just explain this in clear terms. NMPC Get crude oil. Um, how will I put it now? So there are many ways NMPC actually make their money, aside from their JVs, and then of course their PSCs that is running, the production sharing contract that they have uh, with existing, I um, will I call them now, existing IOCs. And then the JVs, they make money through that. If you look closely at the account of SPDC, it's very easy to see. Just look at the accounts of Shell International, you see what SPDC is doing. I think it's clear to everybody to see that those ventures are actually profitable. And then on and on and on. Now, when this money is aggregated, NMPCT takes out funds from that for its own operation. And what's operations for? To maintain pipelines, to pay down subsidies, and to do a b c d now historically before 2016 that report that information had been published if you look at the um if you look at the consolidated uh, budget implementation report being released by the um by the budget office of the federation and you look at the federation part you will see how much NMPC have taken at a point in time NMPC was taking more money that in fact they were taking close to about 2 trillion why the federal government's revenue was less than 1.5 trillion so nmpc itself became it so yeah those have been allegations that have been flying over the wings and that explains why people were pushing for pib to stop them from doing that the role of the pib is actually stop them from doing that nmpc should actually operate like a business so before they operate like a government then of course you don't account for anything now where i'm going is that now when If for adventure, hypothetically, and I can dig out the number if you if I want to dig out, if I open my, if I open the audit report now for, I mean the budget implementation report report for 2014-2015, I think I have it on my system somewhere. If you want me to read out the figure, I'll be glad to read it out. So if NMPC hypothetically, if the federation makes 10 trillion as revenue, NMPC sometimes takes out two, three trillion. And then the remain is now shared among. And that has been the bone of contention between states and the federal government. Why is npc doing this? Who approve what? Who approve that? That happens without anybody. I mean, the NMPC decides itself what it pulls out from the uh, from the fund. So just for content, what uh, he has said is true. And that's why I said it's accounting gimmicks. That when they say NNPC is profitable, it's accounting gimmicks. Because on on what basis will you be profitable since Nigeria is actually still paying subsidy. If you are running your business without, uh, without, of course, essentially, the only way you can be profitable is if the federal government of Nigeria pay and then the state government actually pay off the subsidy on some of these products. And the truth is that nobody, the federal government does not even have that money. Just for context, the total revenue of the federal government.
0: Sorry, so I have to come because, because of...
2: Because uh, of uh, time, uh, yeah. But, uh, let me just round off with this statement, please. Okay. Total revenue of the federal government between January and May this year I mean, about 98% of it was spent servicing debt alone, just to know how weak the federal government is. So how would that federal government now, where would they find funds to pay down subsidy? So it's not possible. So what he has said is 100% accurate.
0: Thank you, thank you Samuel, for um, shedding light on the issues. Uh, You've educated me and I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, just trying to understand the various complexities involved with both the the NMPC and Nigerian government uh, budgeting. And that's where I'm going to bring Matthew in. Matthew, I know you've done a lot of research into corruption and and lack of accountability in Nigeria. Now, you've heard the issues that Phoenix and Samuel have raised, that the NMPC has announced results. A lot of Nigerians are distrustful. State governments often accuse the federal government and the NMPC of shortchanging them. So in your view, what, what, what is the best way to ensure transparency and accountability in, in the management of Nigeria's petroleum
3: revenue? Oh, you saved the hard question for last for, for me, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's very difficult for there to be transparency, right? because the system is, uh, the, you know, the NNPC is sort of fundamentally flawed. It, it lacks independent oversight. It lacks many of the safeguards and and best practices of state oil companies, you know, national oil companies that operate worldwide. I mean, the NNPC is a leading example of of how not to operate, right? How not to operate profitably? How not to operate transparent transparently? Um, you know, Samuel walked us through many of the gimmicks. Um, you know, we haven't even gotten into right the the huge loss-making refineries or the lack of transparency, uh, having to do with specific contracts that the NNPC enters into, and the shell game, of course, that that we've all been talking about, where where monies are moved around, monies even disappear. An excellent resource that that your listeners should should read in order to really understand how how uh, the NNPC lacks these, these types of necessary structures to function effectively uh, was written in, I believe 2015 and still stands true today, which is uh, a paper called Inside NNPC. And that was written for the Natural Resource Governance Institute, NRGI by, by two top experts on uh, resource governance in Nigeria and, and the NNPC, that's Alexandra Gillies, who's a PhD from Cambridge and Aaron Sane. Uh, and they, uh, they wrote an excellent explainer, kind of written a lot of complexity boiled down for the layman to explain just how the NNPC um, functions and in, in, in ways in which it, it lacks this, this type of transparency and oversight. So look, the buck stops with the president of Nigeria. He has made himself the minister of petroleum. Um, he also appoints a board to oversee uh, NNPC as well. I believe um, uh, you know, he, you know, he has a lot of input and shapes the oversight mechanisms for that. And of course, the National Assembly in theory uh, plays an oversight role as well. But we know that the National Assembly, not just when it comes to petroleum matters, but when it comes to any matter of oversight over, over the executive branch and its, and its spending and the budget, rather than exercising independent oversight and demanding uh, a sort of sense that that the state funds are being spent judiciously and effectively, instead what they tend to do is to monetize that oversight position and uh, as we know the petroleum committees much like the defense committees and and some others are seen as quote-unquote juicy committees in other words they enrich those who are able to serve on those committees so where do we start i mean i it's unclear within the current set of structures and the constitutional limitations uh how how we can bring oversight to an organization that's been fundamentally constructed almost as a, you know, and, and still very much exists as a military era entity. And so the answer is in its current shape and form and and until there's, you know, significant legislation to uh, to reform it, I don't see how this is happening. And, and as we all know, the Petroleum Industry Act wasn't that bill. It wasn't a It wasn't a revolutionary, progressive bill in terms of reshaping how Nigeria's uh, petroleum sector is governed.
0: Thank you, Matt. I think, uh, Matthew, I think you've highlighted the key issues. Um, I think you're right. A A number of commentators have said the Petroleum Industry Act doesn't go far enough to address the Corruption issues. And secondly, I think you've highlighted the point that there is a president, there's a national assembly, there's a board of NMPC who should also be playing oversight roles. And I think the general consensus is they haven't done enough, which brings me on to my follow up question to you, because I know that the US and UK governments are big on publicly condemning corruption and they've passed into more many anti-corruption laws, both in the US and the UK. Well, the question I see a lot on social media is, for example, the president of Nigeria is also currently the Petroleum Minister, but well, he's in and out of London at will. His his children schooled in England and visit the country at will. But well, how come nothing is done to try to hold him accountable or hold them accountable by for maybe, for example, denying the kids visas? You have many prominent Nigerian politicians who have ties to the oil industry but all have houses in the U.S. and U.K. and travel there back and forth and nothing seems to be done to hold them accountable. So why do you think
3: that is, uh, Matthew? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, all of you know my research work, I've written about, um, you know, uh, Nigerian, Nigeria's kleptocrats and how they spend their uh, ill-gotten gains, whether it be on property in Dubai or, uh, uh, for a very uh, elite education at, at UK universities and, uh, and other aspects of this problem. So it's very familiar. You know, I've written on uh, UK and US anti-corruption policy as it pertains to Nigeria and pointed out the flaws into, or the gap that exists between rhetoric and the desire to assist um, civil society to tackle this issue, hoping that they can make inroads when in reality, the US and UK are unwilling to really disincentivize through travel uh, restrictions or financial seizures, the activities of of individuals, whether it be within the ruling party or within the upper echelons of this government or previous governments, right? Because we know that this pattern of behavior is really a a cross-party you know, cross time thing, you know, yes, we're all talking about it in the context of the current government, the current set of elites, but in reality, you know, we could transport our, ourselves back in time and be talking about this circa two, uh, 2011 or 2001 or 1991 and be having a very similar set of, you know, conversations and dialogues about the impunity with which, um, high level figures are able to uh, commit acts of corruption or or acquire unexplained wealth in Nigeria uh, at the expense of uh, everyday Nigerians, right? Whose lives are are made more difficult and more dangerous as a result and are able to go to the US, UK, Dubai and so forth and spend that money with impunity. And I, I don't know why the U.S. and U.K. government aren't more forward-leaning on this issue? I think they are generally risk-averse. I think that the Nigerian government, certainly this government, which is less bothered at uh, ruffling feathers abroad. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't seem it. It's both image-conscious, but also. Um, uh, Image, um, you know, w- willing to pick fights. I guess would be would be how I, uh, you know, it's 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 a little more aggressive than previous governments have been in terms of going toe to toe with outside forces that um, criticize it. And so we we all know that to be the truth. Um, so that sort of behavior, that pushback, can condition the behavior of of diplomats, senior government officials abroad. Who might put forward these um, these measures? And also, I think within the UK government and the US government internally, the voices which are prioritizing anti-corruption and trying to elevate it to you know the same status, or trying to link it to other key policy goals such as counterterrorism or uh, social and economic development or democracy and governance trying to explain that, you know, anti-corruption is a key enabler of these other goals. I don't think they have necessarily won the argument or uh, sealed the deal in terms of convincing their colleagues that that in order to achieve progress in those other areas, you have to have a consistent and effective and frankly, much more robust anti-corruption uh, approach to a country like Nigeria, so that's that. Hopefully, explains I guess some of the some of the reasons why we aren't seeing a stronger reaction from London and Washington.
0: Thank you, Matthew. Um, I'm I'm hoping obviously uh, policymakers in in those countries are listening and maybe can take uh, more concrete steps to disincentivize uh, corruption from Nigeria. Well, onto our second topic, uh, Phoenix the attack on the Nigerian defense academy in Kaduna that was apparently launched by bandits whoever they are uh, which led to the sad death of, of two military officers on the scene and one killed later So firstly to Phoenix what, what is going on how the Nigerian defense Academy is one of the most or supposed to be one of the most secure institutions in Nigeria so how how were bandits or so-called bandits able to attack attack the NDA?
1: Michael, it's it's a it's a question that that I've also had on my mind for since the story broke. Um, I mean, we've we've spoken about insecurity um, more than a few times. We've spoken particularly about Kaduna and how it's almost like the epicenter, despite the fact that it, it perhaps must be the one state that has the most military installations. I mean off the top of my head. I mean, and, and of course, to the point you're making, the NDA is, is a key one. I mean, that's really where our, our officers are trained and you'd expect it to be um, secure and, and maybe one of the safest places in the country. And for, and for armed uh, men or, or whatever, armed, an, an armed uh, gang to, to, to show up there, at a military installation it's it's unheard of I, I still can't wrap my head around it so um, and uh, I mean uh, the sad loss of the officers I mean I, I wish their their families well and, 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 and pray that they find some solace in, in their loss but it just speaks to the the I mean we've spoken about the, the total breakdown of uh, security in Nigeria and and all of the issues that comes with um, it's, it's like every, every week there's something new that, that we hear about. And this is another one of those stories that just leaves you wondering um, how, how much longer is it going to take until something really um, effective is done to, to bring the country back from the brink? I mean, it, it, if, if those who are entrusted with protecting the country from threats Foreign and domestic now are the ones who find themselves helpless and and being attacked. I mean, what's the hope for for everyone else? I mean, it it, it was just shocking to me that uh, not only were these bra- bandits, or I would say they're terrorists. I mean, brazen enough to to be so certain that he could walk in and walk out um, on largely unscathed and and make away with you know, having just, you know, um, terrorized a military installation. So, so that that really shocks me. And, and uh, I haven't seen enough. I mean, perhaps, I mean, they're doing this in the North and we're just not hearing about it, which again speaks to uh, some of the issues we've also discussed around um, the way the new cycle is managed in Nigeria, where uh, the government Thinks more about, you know, this is uh, this this comes across as embarrassing to the government, and and this is, I, I guess, they, they they just couldn't. I mean, once once officers were lost, they couldn't put a lead on this one, so so that's why it came out. I mean, we we know uh, instances of how when Boko Haram has attacked or bandits have attacked, they've tried to put a lead on the stories and, and not let them come out. So I wait to to see what they do to actually make sure that. The, the ones who did this pay for it. But I mean, we're at a place now where Nigeria has has, uh, has hit that, that uh, Nigeria as far as I'm concerned. I mean, from a, from an insecurity perspective, we're, we're, we're miles away in a worse situation than we were when Buhari came in and promised to fix his, um, security. We're in a place where there's practically no part of the country where there's no issue. We're in a place where the issue continues to get worse, and there is a general sense of helplessness. Now, there's a celebration, and I'm sure you would you would talk about it and maybe raise it in a question to to either Samuel or, or, or Matthew. There's all this hoopla around uh, you know getting super tucanos and and all of those kind of things, but those don't they don't address the problem. They don't. And I'll leave uh, Matthew to talk about it as he's the expert, but. I never thought that that would address the problem, um, because I mean, at the end of the day, the battle will not. Yes, it's always good to have air support, but the battle will not be won in the skies. Um, and this government has not done enough to show that it is willing to wage a successful uh, battle to to combat this issue. Instead, it has it has become exacerbated. You've seen new groups become emboldened, and this is a clear example of that. So, um, it's it's a shame, really. It's it's really sad. And again, my heart goes out to the families of those who lost uh, people um, very much unnecessarily due to poor leadership.
0: Thank you, Phoenix. Uh, let me bring in uh, Samuel. Samuel, the, the first question is in, in your view, what, what, is, what is happening? Is it that Buhari is unable to get to grips with uh, securing the country or securing military installations? Or is it that he's doing his best, but uh, his officers below him are not delivering? So w- what is happening, Samuel? Because, well, these attacks are quite uh, embarrassing.
2: Well, I think, um, I think the first thing, I, I, I mean, aside from the intent of the president himself, which is very difficult to gauge, if we want to be, if we want to be uh, objective, If we look closely at the economy and then we look at the federal force, the truth is that the federal government cannot police Nigeria. The mentality that we keep carrying emanates from the 1960s. After the civil war, the federal government presumed, and with the help of oil, that you can hold people and then you can stem tides of insecurity, ordering people from Abuja. Of course, maybe it was Lagos then, but (laughs) later it became Abuja. And then the whole idea is uh, you have the federal police actually policing rural areas. What the truth is this, Um, when I was growing up, I can tell you some community, in Nigeria, there are some communities that they've never actually seen a police officer walk into their community. Even in Lagos, if you go to Lagos, Lagos is actually very small. I can tell you that there are some communities in Lagos that they've never, seen the police walk into that community. Now, that's how disconnected the federal government is. Now, in terms of money, the truth is this. The federal government does not have money to actually police the country. Now, so the third aspect is this. Why won't you allow states actually begin to police themselves? Then they go back to the 1960s, and they tell you, oh, it could actually lead to the disintegration of Nigeria. And that's being the rhetoric that we keep passing across. Um, and that explains why the state of insecurity is getting to this level. Now, if you listen closely to the Benue state governor, uh, recent interviews, uh, he made it abundantly clear that the federal government is not willing and is not ready to actually, he's the chief security officer of the state. And as such, any statement that comes from him should be taken serious. If the chief security officer of a state like Benway tells you that the federal government is not willing to actually stem criminality within its own, I mean, within its own state, that they've actually taken side with a particular group, it tells a whole lot of stories. And it's not just the Benway state government. We've had the southern state governors actually congregate themselves together and made similar statements but in a more subtle and more diplomatic manner. So that tells us a whole lot of stories. So if these people are now being emboldened to the level that they can take out uh, military um, um, infrastructure and they can take out people, kill off people, it tells you what these people are likely to do. Of course, when you do it and you succeed, you're most likely going to do it again. Now, aside from that, if we look at response of the president, Went some issues. Remember, some weeks ago, there was some unnecessary quantum killing in Plateau. Look at the way he responded. And then this is what he said when Bandit actually went after, um, after a military installation. Now, just imagine yourself, just imagine another group in the southern part of the country going after military installation. Of course, The president will give them the OD treatment, and he has done that in the Southeast. Look at the way he actually went outside. Of course, I'm not in favor of all these non state actors, because at the end of the day, they they enable criminality. But look at his response when it comes to them. And then look at how, as of today, there's no bandit that is standing trial in Nigeria. I stand to be corrected if that exists. There's none that have been arrested and standing trial, as we speak. Most of the time, the ones that have been arrested in the Southwestern region by this, um, I will call them, or something like that, that's Sido that's, that's security apparatus. Where are they today? Can you, if you go and investigate, most of them have been let loose. They've been let loose. It shows clearly that there's something so, so disconnected about Nigeria. And that raised the question, I mean, in ending the statement, that raised the whole question around what should be the role of the state? What should be the role of the federal government? What should be the role of the local government? If the federal government can't secure Nigerians, and then every other person is uh, my hands are tied. Then it shows that the country will fall apart. So I will have made this argument that this is the time for Nigerians to actually institute state police. Of course, within a particular confined structure, so that it doesn't become an instrument. I mean, the, 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 the I mean the possibility of genocide happening in Nigeria, of course, increases when you have um, state police. But notwithstanding that. We need to actually ensure we can continue to have death every day. I mean, today I was reading the news, the son of the senator had been killed. So it's coming home, whether we like it or not. I mean, many people are leaving the country. People are running Everybody's actually apprehensive. I mean, come around, even in secure locations, people are putting irons on their door. Some people are acquiring illegal weapons uh, to actually protect themselves. I mean, in our state, now everybody's talking about getting armed guards. Uh, you have to go beg, beg the police to actually put armed guards there so that not. T- so, the country, the insecurity situation is getting out of hand. And I think it's time for a genuine, honest conversation to begin and then solutions are actually uh, sorted. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Samuel. Um, I need to bring Matthew to this point. Um, Matthew, building on from what Samuel has said, my, my first question to you is: we see, I know your background is in military intelligence. So firstly, would you be able to shed light on who is actually committing these attacks? Are are these people in quotations bandits or are these terrorists or what are they? And then my second question to you is what Samuel said, Nigeria cannot afford to even secure the the country which raises the the issue of if if we're struggling to, to fund security, how are we, are we managing the limited resources we have uh, properly? So those are the, the, the two questions for you, Matthew.
3: Yeah, those are good questions. Um, well, I mean, you know, it's been a long time since I was in government, so I, I wouldn't have any, you know, good uh, special secret insights into, into where things stand on the ground now. Um, but I think what is clear when it comes to attacks like this is that, you know, they're conducted by a class of people that I would call violence entrepreneurs. So these are people that, and one of the reasons, I guess, there are so many arguments over nomenclature, right? Terrorism, terrorists, bandits, militants, um, thugs, you know, we all have a different Encyclopedia or dictionary of names that we use to to describe these these people who um, you know, commit violence against communities or attack government installations. But the reality of it is, is, sometimes they're actually you know the same group of people just wearing different hats on different days, and uh, you know are not necessarily specializing in one particular type of violence. You know, they're guns for hire. There are people who. Are uh, opportunists, um, you know, we don't really know what the motivation for the attack on the NDA was. Um, you know, was it, it didn't seem very strategic, right? It seemed like a very high risk operation to those conducting it. And it was unclear, right, what they intended to do. Was it to actually, you know, steal weapons? That's often a, a motivation of some of these armed actors. We certainly know that from the Northeast That, you know, one of the things that's really perpetuated conflict and spread conflict across different parts of Nigeria is the seizure and capture of weapons, whether it be small arms or things that are actually quite a bit larger, um, you know, uh, even tanks on occasion that have been seized from the Nigerian military and then used against it and used against civilians and used to um, terrorize communities. So that's something I think, you know, that all of us really, how we need to look at these incidences is rather than getting upset, you know, we can mourn the loss of life, but rather than just sort of spinning our wheels, you know, endlessly and needlessly really ask ourselves, you know, what, what was trying to be accomplished here? You know, what were the motivations of these attackers? Is it a sort of a random attack or is it part of a wider um, uh, offensive by a particular group of individuals trying to achieve something, whether that be terrorists or, or other militants in the, in the local area? Um, and also, you know, how poorly prepared, you know, why was this attack successful? Was it successful because the the guards on duty at the uh, Nigerian Defense Academy were complacent and, and felt they were sort of in uh, a bit of a bubble where they were immune from some of the, um, you know, violence that kind of happens outside their fence line? And were they essentially relying on the notion that armed criminals or armed actors who are out there in the bush, you know, wouldn't dare attack them. You know, that these were, these are small boys who are, you know, playing soldier out in the woods and they wouldn't dare attack the, you know, um, the cradle of uh, Nigerian officer training. So I think, you know, those are, are really important things to, to ask ourselves. And then, you know, on your second question, when it comes to this, you um, you know, the amount that is spent by government, and this is the federal government, state government and even local governments through formal mechanisms, formal budgets, but also semi-formal mechanisms like the security vote, or informal mechanisms like uh, like Samuel was mentioning, you know, the communities hiring armed guards or uh, communities mobilizing, uh, vigilantes and other form, other defenders, hunters, and so forth, to protect their own communities from outside forces. You know, these this is a significant financial drain, and and what is clear is that um, because of the profiteering that has been going on in relation to conflict, both financial and political profiteering that has been taking place. Um, for a long time, but has certainly accelerated over the last several years, Um, as well as, of course, defense sector and security sector corruption. And the fact that for many higher ups in the government and in the police and in the military, instability, criminality is extremely profitable. I mean, what is likely to happen after this NDA attack is of course, you know, the commandant of the NDA is going to be given a huge uh, uh, sort of extra budgetary slice of money to, you know, to spend on contracts for better border security, maybe to re-equip the, um, the garrison uh, guard, the provost marshal that guard the uh, perimeter there. You know, so there are, there are incentives that come and we see that in terms of, postings to conflict zones where, you know, officers are clamoring for those positions because they are very lucrative. And also they clamor for them on the understanding that they're going to have to kick up a certain slice of the earnings that they make from conflict areas to their senior leaders back in Abuja or where have you. So I think the key key point I would like to make on this issue of expenditure and and so forth, is that the Nigerian public is getting an incredibly poor um, sort of value for money and incredibly poor impact with the money that is being spent on security because so much is lost through corruption, inefficiency, waste, and mismanagement. And um, and that, unfortunately, is is just a fact. And so there needs to be holistic security sector reform, you know, fewer better equipped security agencies rather than an alphabet soup, you know, dozen security agencies, all of which are ineffective.
0: Thank you, Matthew, uh, for shedding light. I just wanted to pin down one thing. I don't know if you could respond in in less than a minute. You were, you criticized the Nigerian governments expenditure. I think they spent about $500 million trying to acquire some super Tucano aircraft, which in their view would help to uh, tackle the the, the the terrorists in the North. And you said that was wasteful spending. So in, in one minute, how would you have used that money more judiciously?
3: Yeah, that's, that's exactly my, my point. I mean, I, I respect the Nigerian Air Force. I, I think that they need better equipment, but of course, $500 million in foreign exchange is a lot of money. And for 12 aircraft, uh, it, it, was, it was unclear the justification that this would be a silver bullet, some sort of decisive tool which would allow the Nigerian military to um, to defeat, contain... Um, constrain the attacks by Boko Haram and instead what we need is a much broader investment uh, of that money across a wider um, spectrum of of tools both counterterrorism tools but also civil military tools and basic equipment better conditions for soldiers um, you know better transportation better pay fuel weapons, and so forth, which again, we're told, those issues are no longer issues, You know, they've all been taken care of. Um, but in reality, those are going to make for a much more effective strategy to defeat Boko Haram in the long run. But I think one of the main reasons that that $500 million was spent all in one go, again, was to bypass the sort of the sticky fingers of individuals in the defense establishment so in order in, a, in order to actually get five hundred million dollars worth of equipment, you know, it was necessary to sort of buy it at that highest level from the United States. Whereas if that five hundred million had been distributed through the usual channels, a significant proportion of it would have been would have been lost to waste and inefficiency and corruption. So I understand that. I just think it's a a poor you know very very poor value for money. I think and I think that's that's obvious and will become increasingly obvious over the next 5 years as those planes you know are useful but not decisive in the, in the war against boko haram
0: thank you matthew for your response uh, i'm going to go to phoenix now for our final uh, topic which is the security services opening fire at a recruitment center to chase doctors away and all they the were doing was basically looking for jobs in Saudi Arabia. So, Phoenix, how do we get to this point? Um, people usually apply for jobs abroad. So, why would the SSS or the security services attack job seekers,
1: Phoenix? Um, well, Nigerian security forces and overzealousness uh, always go hand in hand, right? They, they're always trying to impress their the the political masters and uh, you see them doing the, the things of stupidity like this. I remember when uh, they went to uh, was it lay siege on the National Assembly. I can't remember what it was two years ago or something um, that led to the removal of uh, their boss Daura at that time by Oshimadu. It's 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 another comical act. I mean. Um, some recruiters from Saudi Arabia came, they were, they were doing open recruitment at the Sheraton Hotel in Abuja and uh, these guys went there to disperse the people and even were said to have arrested uh, a journalist. Now they've come out to deny it <laughs> as they want to do once they've done something stupid and the blowback starts to come in. But it's also hilarious because in one vein, they are ostensibly doing this because they see it as being embarrassing to the, uh, to, to the government and the nation. But we've heard several times, um, ministers in, in this current government speak disparagingly about um, healthcare professionals, about doctors. We had a minister in the first term who compared who? Sort of like, said they should go find work as uh, tailors and and things like that. We've heard uh, the minister of uh, minister for labour, who's also a medical doctor by profession, talk about the fact that Nigeria has a uh, a lot of doctors, and so it's it's actually okay if people are leaving the country for to go abroad. We've seen the treatment of of healthcare professionals. They're constantly on strike. They're underpaid, they're undervalued. So it, it's ridiculous to me that the same government that behaves in this way to them has their henchmen going to try to stop them when they try to find alternatives for their own lives and and, and want to move on. But we do know that Nigeria has a dearth of, of, of doctors. I mean, it's beginning to show, right? We, stories of um of of uh, people going to the hospitals and, and and there's not enough good care there's not enough doctors we've seen the huge massive wave after wave of of trained doctors leaving nigeria it's almost like especially the young ones as soon as they're done with the, with their um housemanship or things like that they start writing exams to go to the uk to go to go abroad and it's happening in, in, in waves. And there's no way that your healthcare system is gonna survive that brain drain that continues to happen. But I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to get into exaggerating, but I would say that, I mean, this this government and healthcare, I mean, has been, I mean, the, the, the way they've managed healthcare um, over the last five, six years has been abysmal. And you, and that's why you see this kind of things happening, and then you see this overzealous security officials trying to uh, put a stop to it in the only way they know, as they say. I mean, to a hammer, everything is a nail, and 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 they just end up embarrassing their their leaders even to, to an even worse degree than will probably have happened. But I mean, I'm tired of uh, continually hitting against them, but. They, they leave you with no choice with things that continue to come out every single time.
0: Thank you, uh, Phoenix. Um, I think <laughs> I could tell from your voice that you're <laughs> tired. No, but let me bring in uh, Samuel. Um, Samuel, Phoenix has raised an important point, which is that Nigeria has a shortage of, of doctors. And I've seen a number of comments on social media where people are arguing back and forth as to what the solution is. There's a general agreement that uh, we don't have enough doctors. Some people say, well, that's why Buhari was left with no choice but to uh, d- disrupt r- the recruitment process. But in your view, what is, what is your, or your recommended method of addressing the shortage of doc- doctors in Nigeria B? <laughs> My
2: recommended, um, now it's, it's a complex web of, um, I'll call it, it's complex. One, you can't hold humans. Humans are not slaves. As such, so you can't confine them by borders actually drawn by men. Uh, I think that's clear, that's clear to anybody. If a country doesn't offer you economic benefits, you seek alternative anywhere you want to seek alternative. Uh, I think that's it. But in terms of the complexity, of um, what led us here. Uh, We need to remember that the federal government of Nigeria actually set policies around health. The federal government is responsible for setting policies. Uh, And in setting policies, classically, if you look closely at the health sector, you will come down, it comes down to about five key things. One, poor infrastructure. Infrastructure could be the building, the improvement, Uh, the way the office looks, the floor, and we can talk about that. The second problem has to do with equipment. Lack of bed, lack of essential medical and health equipment to actually manage things. The third one, which is actually at the heart of this this conversation, is the personnel. You need personnel to make everything work. Of course, the fourth one, I will deal with medical supplies and drugs. Uh, Do we have enough drugs? Do we have enough medical supplies? And then where are they? And then how do you move it? Things like immunization, vaccines, and all those kinds of things. And then finally, we'll look at uh, record keeping. So essentially, all the five key pillars that makes an health system work in Nigeria, it's faulty. We have problems. Now, why did we get here? See, at the national, I'll come to the national level. At subnational level, the first point of call is the primary care center. In Ogun State, for instance in Ogun State, Ogun State is very close to Lagos. Ogun State is having only 250, I think 256 midwives. The entire state about how many? What's the population of Ogun, depending on who you talk to? 256 midwives, the whole of Ogun State. Why do we have 256 midwives? Look at the budget of Ogun State. For the past five years, the government had refused to recruit anybody. That's the problem they've refused to recruit anybody. So the people working in there are actually playing in the private sector. I mean, trying to actually make ends meet. Now, when you say, okay, so if you go to Anambra state, it's the same thing. And people say, oh, it's the money. No, it's not a money problem. In Anambra in state, for instance, over the past five years, the state had mobilized 99%. In fact, it targets, for every 100 naira, it targets as revenue. It has collected 99 naira. So it's not a money problem. It's a wheel problem. Now, away from this big talk around personnel, I just mentioned that the whole of Ogun State now, they have 256 midwives. If I begin to take directories across the state, which I'm doing now anyway, that's the pillar of the work I'm doing now. I want to really understand how we got to this point. At least I've done for Ogun State, I'm doing for your state, I've done for Nambra State. I'm trying to look at why do we, and those states that I am mentioning the health outcomes seems to be better than most of the states. So it tells you the gravity of challenges that we are facing. Now, why would somebody abandon his duty post? Speaking to this midwife, the one that exists in State, if you see their office, if you see where they sleep, I mean, I will tell you that some cats are better kept than these people. So why would you stay in a situation that's so pitiful? And the cost of inflation, Things are actually accelerating. The same government will tell you oh, electricity bill needs to be, um, maybe you need to pay 40,000 for electricity bill be your salary is 50,000. So people will seek alternative, that's the truth. People will have to survive. Then essentially, and remember the minister of labor during the period of negotiation publicly said to the people that people are free to leave. If you want to leave, we have enough doctors in Nigeria. In fact, the street is littered with doctors. And then if you want to leave, you leave. So the attitude of government, one, the political will to correct this problem is absolutely not there. I'm not even diving deep into the whole health issues that we have. And there's not been concerted efforts by government to take corrective measures, even when they are lighted to them. If you go, for instance, last year, go and look at the budget. Go and look at the federal government's budget. What have, they, what have they done to actually recruit? So as people are leaving, normally you are supposed to replace them. They refuse to replace them. And so it's a pitiful situation that we find ourselves. But that said, I think it's important to highlight that you cannot hold human Humans are not slaves. I can, I can wake up today and decide, that, oh, I don't want to stay. I don't want to stay in Abuja. I want to go back to my village. And so you can't hold me down. I'm not, even a footballer, a footballer you have get out plus when you sign contracts right? Most of these doctors, they don't, their jobs are not secured. They are living from mouth to, uh, what do you call it now, from hand to mouth. The income that they are earning is not there in terms of the condition of service is horrible, no security. We can talk about the challenges they face. Now, people will say, oh, but the federal government actually trained these people through the university system. I disagree. The truth is this. If you go to the university system, and you look at, for instance, you go to build, for instance, for adventure, and you take a deep dive into look. you will discover and ask any medical student how much he contributed actually building himself for, and then becomes clearer. So the federal government has not done anything. People say, oh, the tuition fee. All those are side talk. To become a doctor, in fact, majority of people that have been trained as doctors in Nigeria pay through their nose. And when I say pay through their nose, it's not commiserate. You can't compare the UK with Nigeria in terms of education because standard of living are different. But when you look at Nigeria, for instance, just imagine somebody, just imagine a man earning 15,000 having to send his children to school to study medicine. Right? And how much is the tuition fee? He's paying 150, 200,000 if, if you are going to public school. Essentially, if you are earning 15,000, you can't afford to pay it. So it's Thank not you, a uh, So can... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I'm dragging this too long. Please, um, people are free to do what they want to do. They are free to move anywhere they are free. I mean, you can't stop them. They are no slaves. Thank
0: you, uh, Samuel. I, I think I agree. And you, you you shed light on the issues. I, I quite agree that uh, we, we cannot, in a democracy, restrict people from freely moving country if they, if they can get a better job elsewhere. So I agree with that. And the, the question for Matthew is, Matthew, I know your in your in your current role you're a researcher or a scholar on international peace now in two minutes i want you to summarize what 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 are the security or peace implications for a country like nigeria if our doctors or the there's a huge shortage of doctors in the country what does that do for the general, maybe what we'll say, is, is that not some sort of national security threat if a, if a country has, uh, has a shortage of, of doctors? And what what, implica- what, is, what what are the implications generally for Nigeria?
3: Well, that's a really good question. I like the way you frame that because we don't often think of, st- when we talk about Nigeria's stability or its prosperity, right? We think about GDP, we think about the number of attacks and, uh, you know, Uh, the military victories or what have you that need to take place to get us there. But the provision of basic health care, basic education uh, are equally important definitions of of, uh, prosperity and social and economic development. And as we know, both in terms of what's budgeted for by federal and state governments and also the international and donor assistance that Nigeria receives in the health and education space and in other other developmental ways, there's there there are significant amount of resources being being spread around, but uh, and it's hard to say that there was ever a golden age of healthcare or education in Nigeria. But you know, uh, Michael, you know when you when you know a lot of people right who who grew up before structural adjustment, you know, talk about how, you know, the quality, for example, of schools and even universities, you know, were, were much higher and then um, decayed significantly during the Babangida, you know, uh, era and, and onwards. And so what we've seen is a, a miseration and an impoverishment of uh, everyday Nigerians coupled with high levels of population growth. And, and unmet expectations and rather than tackling these issues in some sort of policy way or or through um increased budget uh budget allocations right and and having to make savings on in these other areas right we've talked about today during the podcast whether it be defense spending spending that money more judiciously or or shutting out, you know, being more transparent with petroleum sector revenues, as we talked about in the first segment, what instead has happened is there's been a privatization in Nigeria of public goods. So now, right, instead of relying on the the state to provide, you know, in exchange for taxes and fees, clean water, basic healthcare, basic quality education, these have been, become the province of, of sort of startups, right, entrepreneurs, who for a fee, for a higher fee, you know, provide that to everyday Nigerians. So as, as Samuel has said, you know, professionals are having to scrimp and save in order to afford what would be necessities in, in other societies that have the, the wealth and, um, and aspirations that Nigeria has. So... So I think, you know, to answer your question, um, you know, the stability and peace implications of a failing healthcare system or a failing education system are are acute and underappreciated. When all of us talk about what's going on day-to-day in Nigeria, this is one of those slow motion threats that I talk about in in my book alongside climate climate change and population growth is this decline in basic service provision, which at some point, right, the, the, the straw is going to have to break over the camel's back. And you'll see, you know, a, an outcry of public discontent um, that, that doesn't just center around healthcare, but around um, the provision of public services and the, and the, uh, and the um, unraveling of the social contract that should exist between government and its citizens.
0: Thank you, Matthew, for uh, providing uh, expert insight into this topic, and I, and I think you're right. Um, I know I'm, I'm, a, I'm a capitalist by political leaning, but even I agree that the extent to which every aspect of, of what Nigerians will consider good governance is almost privatized now, is something that we should worry about, because as you said, most of us, most of us are parents who were in Nigeria, went to government schools, and it's just a shame that ordinary Nigerians cannot get that quality of education provided by the government. But our time is up. So firstly, I must thank Matthew and Samuel for taking time out to be here. Your input is always, always top quality. Uh, thank you, Phoenix, for co-hosting this podcast with me. And finally, thank you to our listeners for always giving us helpful feedback and being loyal. So until the same time next week, as I say, have a fantastic seven days to everyone.
1: Thank you, Matthew. And um, thank you, Sam, more for joining us. We, I can't agree more with uh, Michael. And thanks, Michael, again, for leading the discussions. Uh, I mean, just a reminder that uh, we begin sort of like a countdown to the first anniversary of uh, of the NSARS movement from last year. Of course, it, it started way beyond that, but it really crystallized in October 2020. And uh, and uh, I hope we, we, we all bring that back into memory and uh, make sure we don't forget those who we lost and also what the struggle was really about. Bye, everyone, and have a great week.